this morning. The first one comes out of Job chapter 2, verse 10, the second part of verse 10, where it says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Second verse this morning is from one that we know all too well, Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. You know, when Mary first asked me to preach the sermon for this morning a few weeks ago, I had a topic, a specific topic that I was going to preach on, a topic that I had always wanted to preach a sermon on, but that sermon will have to wait for another Sunday. Because since that day, there have been certain events in the Atullah household that have occurred, events that have truly changed our lives forever. And since then, God has put it on my heart to preach on a topic that I had not originally planned on preaching. The sermon this morning is on God's sovereignty. Now, when you think about God's sovereignty, it's a truth that really, truly touches all of our lives. If we begin with the word itself, the word sovereign is both a noun and a verb. And as a verb, it means to rule. As a noun, it means king or master of all or absolute ruler. And to say that God is sovereign means that God, he is in charge of the entire universe, all of the time, every single moment of the day. In other words, this means that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. So for the Christian, there is no such thing as luck or chance or fate or coincidence. In fact, you hardly ever hear me use the phrase good luck. And if I do, it's just a slip. But I don't believe that anymore. Because you can have God or chance, but you cannot have them both because they conflict with each other. But let me begin by acknowledging that this is not a popular doctrine. You don't hear sermons on this doctrine in many churches anymore because most of us would rather hear about God's love and His grace. There are tougher doctrines sermons to preach, though. You know, if you notice, our passage from Job is on the second part of verse 10. Did you read the first part of that that verse? It says, he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. That is a sermon that I was not brave enough to preach on, so I started with <laughs> the second part of that verse. Plus the fact that I live with four women, and there's, there's no way I was going to touch that one. Now, theoretically, we don't have a problem with this doctrine. I mean, is it, it isn't hard for us to believe that God orders the path of the stars in the sky. We can't say how he does it, only that he does it. And if he didn't do it, then the stars would cease to shine. After all, somebody has to take care of the stars, and God does. And we accept that. That's not hard to believe. Our problems with sovereignty start when sovereignty becomes more personal to us. To speak of the stars is one thing, and we can leave that with God because we know that we have absolutely nothing to do with the stars. But to 
to say that God is in charge of all that happens to me, both the good and the bad, both the happy and the sad and the positive and negative, and that he is working out his plans, and that somehow includes everything that happens to me, and is supposed that he works out the details of my life and gives me what is best for me every single day, that's a different story. Because when trouble comes banging on our door, we want to know who's running the show, don't we? That's what sovereignty is all about. It answers the question, who is running the show? And there's a great deal, there's a great stake in how we answer that question. Now, there are two big problems that we humans have with grasping God's sovereignty. And the first, and I think it's probably the biggest problem of the two problems, is the existence of unexplained human catastrophes. You know, we all understand this objection because it focuses on those strange events, the freak accidents, the natural disasters. And these events are sometimes bound, they're bound up in the little fine print that we find in our insurance policies, the acts of God. Like a volcano that erupts in, in Hawaii and destroys 20 homes, or a tornado that hits Oklahoma and leaves 24 dead, or a hurricane that devastates New Orleans, or a famine in Somalia, or an earthquake in China, or a tsunami that wipes out a quarter of a million people. Now these things happen, they happen so often that we really, we've come to the point that we are numbed by them. We don't pay much attention to them unless they're really super big or they are very, very close to us. That's when it spikes our attention. And it's only when that our attention is spiked that we shake our heads and wonder why. Why me and not them? Or why them and not me? Why here and not there? Why now? You know, I mentioned at the front end of the sermon that family events have altered my sermon topic for this morning. Last month, my beautiful bride, Julie, she went in for her annual mammogram, what we thought was just a, a normal procedure, but it turned out into a biopsy. And then ultimately, the news that Julie had breast cancer, aggressive breast cancer. And some of you already know, know the terrible severity. certain that everybody who has gone through the same experience is also blindsided. You know, over the years I have known many people who have fought the battle with cancer, and I have known a few who have lost that battle as well. But I was always on the other side of that conversation until now. Before, cancer had always knocked on the door of our lives as just a visitor. But this time, it came became a permanent residence in our lives. You know, there's something eerie about the word cancer because when it's attached to somebody who you love, it changes you permanently. You are not the same person that you were before that news was revealed to you. And you will never be that same person again. The second big problem that we have with God's sovereignty is when we see the wicked prosper. You know, some things that happen to us Christians is explainable, but we feel that they're still undeserved. 
we didn't deserve to have our, our marriage break up. We didn't deserve to be cheated. We didn't deserve to lose our job. We didn't deserve to be abused as a child. We didn't deserve to lose one of our children. We didn't deserve cancer. This sort of thing really bothered the men and the women of the Bible. Because if you read Psalm 73, you will read about a man named Asaph who struggled in his faith as he watched the wicked prosper. He envied them. He thought, you know, these guys, they're getting away with murder. In Psalm 73, verse 2, he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So as he's studying the bad guys, they seem so carefree. They seem so happy in life. They act like they don't have a problem in the world, and these guys are living on easy street. And if they want to swear, they swear. If they want to rip somebody off, they do it. It's as if they were just thumbing their nose up to God. And then in verse 12, he says, This is what the wicked are are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. The good die young, or so we're told. And then the wicked, they live to be 85 years old. So where is the justice in that? And where is God when his people are backed against the wall? What does it mean to say that his kingdom rules over all when life just seems to kick us in the teeth? It's a vital question, and if you don't grapple with it sooner or later, you will end up losing your faith. Of course, that may not be such a bad thing, losing your faith and all, because sometimes we have to lose our faith in order for us to find it all over again. So how should we as Christians respond to the storms in our life? How do we respond to God's sovereignty when life has just dealt us with a sucker punch and we are on our hands and knees and we're spitting feet? How do we respond to that? Well, there are really only two ways that we need, that you can look at life. You can look at life from the bottom up or from the top down. Now, from the top down means that you start with God and then you look at your problems. From the bottom up means that you look at your problems and then try to work your way up to God. For most people, they instinctively start from the bottom and go up if they can. But what difference does that make? Friends, it makes all the difference in the world. Maybe the difference between keeping your faith in your Lord. The difference between joy and bitterness, between self-pity and victorious faith. Many people react with bitterness towards the things God allows in their lives. The death of a loved one, illness or tragedies, financial ruin. They all, these things all have the power to create bitterness within our hearts if we don't maintain the proper perspective. The problem is, is if you start with you, you're going to end up with you, and you're not going to be any better off than you were to begin with. But if you start with God, you have started in the only possible place where you will get real answers. And this may be the central message of the book of Job. The book of Job gives us the proper response for God's sovereignty and also how the Christian should deal with sufferings in this life. Open your Bibles. Take the Bibles out of the pews and open them up to page 788 because I want you guys to take a look, kind of scan chapter 1 of Job and we'll also touch chapter 2. Page 788. 
Now, in, in chapter 1 of Job, Satan's having a conversation with God. And he receives God's permission to put Job to the test. Now, when you read this, if you glance at, at verse 13, you'll notice that the test happens on the day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. So in a moment of great happiness at a family reunion, when you least expect it, Satan strikes. First, the Sabians steal Job's livestock and kill his servants in verses 14 to 15. Second, a fire of God destroys his sheep and kills his servants in verse 16. And then third, the Chaldeans steal his camels and kill his servants in verse 17. And then fourth, a great wind hits the house where his children are feasting and kills them all. So these four messengers of misfortune come to Job one after another. Three times our text here in chapter 1 says, while he was still speaking, in verses 16, 17, and 18. In other words, in the space of a few minutes, Job loses everything that is dear to him. His vast wealth vanished. His empire is crumbled. His servants are murdered, and his children are killed. I think that was classified as a bad day, don't you? No, that's the worst part of our tragedy. When they strike, it seems like they come again and again and again. And we think, surely, this must be the worst of it. Just when it seems that things can't get any worse, the bottom falls out again. In chapter 2 of the book of Job, we read that Job's faith is unfazed after Satan's test. So, undeterred, Satan has another conversation with God. And once again, he receives permission from God to test Job. That's a key point there, folks. Satan has to give God permission. This time, however, Satan's going to go for the jugular vein. He's going to go after Job's health in chapter 2. He inflicts Job's entire body with painful sores from the bottoms of, of his feet to the top of his head. And in the end, Job faced unimaginable loss and a series of catastrophes that left him sitting on an ash heap, scratching his sores. But at least Job still had his wife to love and support him, right? He lost his children, but he didn't lose his wife. Well, guess what she was doing? She, she was urging him to curse God and die. Boy, what an encourager she was. What's interesting, however, is that the largest part of the book of Job is the dialogue with his friends over why these things have happened. And here is a really important point of this book. Amazing fact. Job never finds out why God chose him for such suffering at all. His central question of why me remains unanswered. He apparently never finds out about Satan and God's conversation and Satan's part of this whole scheme here. So in terms of specific answers, Job is left in the dark. But by the end of the book, there is a huge difference. When he at last bows down before the Lord, he acknowledges God's sovereignty, saying, I know that you can do all things, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Chapter
Chapter 42. So the question to us might be, might be put this way. Am I willing to believe God, that God knows what he's doing in my life when I have not a clue of what's going on? Do I really believe that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass? Everything that comes to pass. Well, if you read Romans 8.28, it tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But what does Romans 8.28 mean by all things? I mean, how inclusive is that? Well, according to the Bible, it's utterly all-inclusive. It includes all that can happen in the life of a child of God. It includes the good and the bad. It includes both health and sickness. It includes wealth and poverty and life and death. That means that Romans 8.28 is just as true in the hospital as it is here in the sanctuary. It means that when you're in the waiting room and the clock just does not seem to move, and you know that your loved one is in the hands of a surgeon, that no matter what the outcome is, whether it's life or death, whether it's cancer or no cancer, whether you see them again or not, you know that moment is truly in God's hands. It's part of the all things that work together for good. So in other words, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can happen to the child of God that's outside of the all things of Romans 8.28. And my friends, that alone should give us great comfort. Here's the question, though. Do you really believe that? It comes back to our faith once again. You know, there is no greater question facing men and women who believe in God. Because for every person who doubts the deity of Jesus Christ, there's a hundred more who are secretly wondering about the goodness of God. Skeptics put the matter this way. Well, if God were all-powerful, if he could do anything, wouldn't he just stop all the suffering in the world? If God were good, he wouldn't permit these things to happen. Whichever path you choose there, God ends up either being too weak to stop evil too cowardly and scared. You know, I think our, our greatest problem with Romans 8.28 is that our good is different from God's good. We define it differently. He defines it differently. It's not the same. We want happiness. We want fulfillment. We want peace and a long life. Meanwhile, God is at work in us and through us and uses everything, every single thing that happens to us to transform us into the image of his son. Many times, it takes a tragedy just to get our attention, doesn't it? You know, the two greatest fears that I have in my life are losing my wife or losing any one of my children. I cannot think of suffering anything more intense or painful than those two events. Somewhere I read the story of a father whose son was killed in a tragic accident. And in tremendous grief and enormous anger, he visits his pastor and pours out his heart. He says, where was God when my son died? Just angry. And the pastor just looked at him. And with great wisdom and compassion, he said, God was in the same place when he watched his son die. God not only, not only knows our greatest fears, but he feels our deepest pain as well. He's been there. 
Another problem that we have with God's sovereignty is that our God is too small. Our fears distort the size of our problems. And pretty soon, our problems become bigger than our God. And then soon after that, our problems dismiss the power of God in our lives. But there is one antidote to fear that we have. That is our faith. A strong faith can wipe out any fear that may even enter your life or your mind. It's a faith that understands that God is sovereign over the entire universe. And once you realize that, that brings such an enormous amount of peace to you. Despite your circumstances, despite anything else that you may be going through. You know, as I was reflecting on the news of Julie's cancer, a, a question came to mind. You know, what does it mean to say that God is sovereign when you just found out that your wife has cancer? What possible good can come for this horrific disease? What are some of the positive events that God has worked together for good in our lives? So I sat there and I thought about it, and I thought long and hard. But it didn't take very long to see God's fingerprint all over the place. You know, up to this point, he has revealed to me six ways in which his purposes are being served in all of this. The first one is family unity. You know, this event in our lives has drawn our family closer than we've ever been before. Julie and I, we're busy people. We continue to serve in multiple ministries. The girls, they're getting in their teens. A couple of them have crossed a threshold into young adulthood, you know, so they're increasingly off doing their own thing. So the busyness of life has seemed to pull our family into separate directions. But I see God using this event to serve as a needed catalyst for family unity. In fact, we are now hearing from very close family friends or family members that we have lost contact with over the years for various reasons. God is using this to restore relationships. Second way God is using this is to help me become a better husband. Guys, this has created inside of me such a strong desire to be the loving, compassionate, selfless husband that God has created me to become. Much more work still has to be done here. I am a work in progress. And to be perfectly honest, to be totally transparent, I don't know if I would have gotten here any other way. Praise God. The third way was to experience the importance and the purpose and the power behind the body of Christ. The body of believers. Both Julie and I have received, received such an amazing, I mean absolutely amazing outpouring of love and prayer from you all. It has been just, uh, I don't have words for it. You know, we have churches that are praying for us both throughout the Northwest, even in California, we are on this prayer list. I've told people that it seems like the whole planet is praying for us. There have been so many of you and others from, from BSF and others from, and even those who have left the church that have just come around us and are walking with us in this journey. In fact, Brad and Casey Dyson, many of us know them. You know, they contacted us. They, a little while back, they left the church, and, and for the right reasons. 
they contacted us a couple weeks ago and they said, you know, God has it on their heart to return to this church. And one of the reasons was that he wanted us to walk alongside with you. He said to begin this, this journey that you're on, this touchstone. And may God give you comfort. And for those who say that we can worship and serve our God without going to church, they have no idea what they're missing. And it's one of the most cherished blessings that we have. Now we understand that the tree itself can hear power and the purpose of the body of Christ. And we thank you all for that. The fourth way that I see God working in this these are, is to use our suffering to help each other. You know, I've seen God's purposes served not only in Julie's cancer, but in the cancer of others. I've seen Chris Ellison, Marsha and Steve Starr. I've seen Joanne James just come around Julie and just love her and support her and bring her words of comfort, exactly what she needed. God is now using their experiences with this very same disease to bring us guidance, wisdom, and support. And Julie and I, trust me, we will be passing on our love and wisdom and support from this experience to help others through it as well. It's been amazing to see how many of God's, God's children who have suffered through this disease come to our, to our aid. And I was surprised. And I mean, I was blown away to see this large community of cancer survivors come forward to help. People who we knew that I had no idea that they went through the same thing. So you see, our suffering is not just about us. God uses us to bring comfort to others who are going through the very same thing. Fifth way that I see God working in this is our faith and our dependence and our trust in God is growing. Moment by moment by moment. And for any one of you who are, who are close to me, you know that I have a suck it up and, and move on type of attitude, right? All my family sitting are going like this right now. Not this time. Not with this. This one buckled my knees. I hate that stuff. I can't think of any better place to do than on my knees. For I humbly admit that I do not have the strength to do this on my own. And I know that his strength will be magnified in my weakness. I need the strength from God. I need his reassurance that he is by our side, moment by moment. I need to read his word and be reassured that not only is he with me, but that he is going to use this situation to fulfill his purposes and our good. I need that reaffirmation every single day. The sixth way that God is using this is to witness and to glorify him through this experience. Now, we could have very easily kept this a private matter and out of the public eye. But that's a different time. Trust me, it is not easy to stand up here before you and give you this sermon this morning. To sit and listen to, to a sermon on God's sovereignty is one thing. To give one through personal experience is quite another. But it was God's plan. And it's only through his strength that it's even possible. My friends, we are to witness. We are to witness to the world of what God's sovereignty means and how we as God's people deal with it. And we are to witness for our three daughters, Julie and I, on what God's sovereignty means and how we are supposed to respond to it in daily life. Especially, especially if it's the most painful thing that you will ever experience. Job learned 
God's purpose in trials isn't to break us, it's to grow us. One way that he shows his love doesn't feel like it at the time, but he doesn't want to punish us. He wants to perfect us. And often, and I'm sure many of you can validate this, often the most valuable lessons that we learn in life is through the furnace of affliction, isn't it? It's not hard to believe in God when everything is going your way. I mean, anyone can do that. But when life tumbles in around you, how will you respond? You serve God in the sunshine of your life, but you're now serving in the storm. You sing praises when to Him when all was going well, but you still sing praises to Him through your tears. Is He still your shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death? He was good enough for you when you had money in the bank. Is he good enough for you when you have no money at all? He was good enough for you when you had your health. Is he good enough for you when the doctor says you only have six months to live? He was good enough for you when you were married. Is he good enough for you when your loved one walks out on you? He was good enough for you when you had all your family together. Is he good enough for you when you stand around an open grave? survey the great losses in our life, the tragedies, they often span over years or they span over decades. Sometimes they span over our entire lifetime. But think about Job. Job lost it all. Not in a year, not in six months, not in a few weeks. He lost everything in one afternoon. In fact, literally, he lost it in his family at funeral. Tragedy is no respect of a person. You can be on top of the world and lose it all in just the twinkling of an eye. And it can come to the same house again and again and again. And there is nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing that we can do about it. The only thing left for us is how do we respond to that? How does God want us to respond to that? You know, most of the time we will never know the answer to the question why. God's purposes and His plans for our lives are often way beyond our comprehension. That's why the Bible says that His ways, His understandings are way beyond ours, and they are. So what God does and why He does it are better left to Him. He never asks us to understand what His plan is. He only asks us to trust it in spite of our doubts. And when we finally realize that we don't have to have all the answers, that's when the peace comes. We don't have to figure it all out. Now, that being said, does that mean that this trial cures cancer, that it's going to be an easy road for, for us to travel? Absolutely not. You know, there are going to be nights when our pillows will be soaked with tears. Guaranteed. In fact, just the other day, I'm out there, I'm fertilizing the lawn in my front yard. And right in the middle of it, I stop and I just break down in tears. It just blindsided me. It came out of nowhere. We know we're going to have those moments. There will be days when we will not feel like standing and shouting hallelujah. There will be moments that we will not feel like praising God. But we must. And we will. Because when it comes down to it, it isn't about what we feel like. It's about what we believe and who we believe in. 
about pressing and being obedient to our sovereign God. You see, my friends, faith is a conscious choice to obey God in spite of our circumstances. Listen to how Job states this in his case in, in chapter 23. He says, My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his ways through without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So here's a man who's in dire straits, far worse than most of us will ever be in our lives. And in the midst of his pain, he makes this bold declaration, I am still serving the Lord. As sad as it's been, there's nothing that can cause me to turn away from God. Where does that kind of faith come from? To me, that's a critical or critical question because you know, when I mention my own heart, I'm not so sure that I would be as strong as Job under his circumstances. How does a person stay strong in life when they've been around them? Well, I have come to the conclusion that the people who survive great trials understand that faith is a conscious moment-by-moment choice. They understand that faith is not based on how you feel at any given moment. You know, for many people, they view faith as an emotion that if they feel good, if things are going well, if they find themselves in a great worship service, then faith is easy. But there's only one problem with that concept. It won't work when you don't feel good or when things aren't going well or when the service is boring. Feeling-based faith won't cut it when the walls of your life start crashing in. It's in those moments of desperation that you have to make a choice. And it's exactly the decision that Job made. And I'm sure Job didn't feel like following God after all the tragedies that he endured, but neither did anyone. That's why he survived, and that's why we still talk about him to this very day. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. Your mercies endure forever. To you, O Lord, be all the honor the glory and praise in our good times and in our bad times. And when we see clearly and when the way forward is confusing, in our doubts and through our tears and our happy moments, and when life tumbles in, be glorified in us. We thank you that you know what you're doing and that you are doing it. And we are glad about that because many times it isn't. So Father, we rest our weary souls on you, the rock of our salvation. Give us confidence to believe that the God who started a good work in us will bring it to completion, and even today is bringing it to completion. So help us to stand fast, never move, trusting in you now and forevermore until the day comes when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we could have the ushers come forward for the